The title of today's message is Calamity in the Land. Calamity in the Land. Calamity can come in various forms. It can come individually. It can come to a family. It can come to a couple. Uh, It can come to a city. It can come to a state. It can come to a nation. It can come to all of mankind. But calamity will come. Of that you can be sure. It will come individually. It will come corporately. But at some point in time, calamity will come. There has been no person ever who has lived who has avoided all calamity, all hardship, all trial, all suffering. And so calamity will come. Loss will come. In a sin-affected world, the wage of sin is death. And that takes various forms, including death. And so it will come. And typically, the worst form of calamity we face is death, the death of near friends and near loved ones and our own death or the death of a great number of people all at once and some catastrophe or some plague. But calamity will come of that we can be sure. And so we need to be prepared for calamity and to live in light of the reality of a fallen world that calamity will come for us and not have our faith go through a hour of struggle or darkness or even apostasy, lose our faith in the midst of calamity. What would the Lord Jesus say to us, say to individuals, say to cities, states, nations, all of humanity in the midst of a calamity? What would the Lord Jesus say in the middle of the COVID-19 China Fauci virus? What would the Lord Jesus say in the middle of a pending global World War III? What would the Lord Jesus say if indeed Russia did, did see fit to nuke New York, as there's been some talk about? What would Jesus say if New York was suddenly gone in a flash? And what would I say? <laughs> One, I'd say we, we shouldn't have poked the bear, quite literally, for the, the sake of our Democratic Party's insanity. But more importantly, I would say God is a just judge. And I would challenge our neighbors to consider what Jesus said, which is what I did back when, in 2001, terrorists took box cutters and hijacked planes and crashed them into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and into that field in Pennsylvania. All of a sudden, our entire nation and really all the world was glued to the TV and, and watching innocence fall to their deaths. Innocence burn up in buildings that just disappeared before our eyes into nothing. Phone calls from innocence on the planes to their family members before the planes went down, specifically the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania with Todd Beamer on it. And this experience of calamity on national television, calamity before our eyes, was was so overwhelming that virtually all the TV stations decided to no longer show us the images because it was too troubling. Of course, they also wanted to protect Islam and any Islamic backlash, which was all the, the rage to guard us from raging against the evil of Islam the beautiful religion of Islam, as they termed it. But how are we to respond to calamity in the land, whether it's September 11, 2001, whether it's some future flash over a city that results in the city and all of its inhabitants being vaporized, whether it's World War III coming in the future, whether it's another plague unleashed, a COVID-19 Fauci, China virus unleashed upon mankind, seemingly deliberate. How are we to respond to this? Are we to fret? Are we to worry? Or are we to say, where is God in this? Are we to explain to people that God is a gentleman and he lets sinners sin and, you know, he really doesn't want this to happen, but but you've got to understand God's a nice guy and he's too nice a guy to infringe upon our own sovereign self-determination. Are we to argue this baloney and offer the world the comfort of a baloney sandwich? Is that our message? No, it's not. Calamity in the land, whether it's personal 
or corporate should remind us of the words of the Lord Jesus in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel. Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. This is the go-to verse for calamity in the land. Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all of the men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Calamity in the land. The Lord Jesus was confronted with calamity in the land, and he had an answer. Praise God. He who is the truth had the truth for calamity in the land. And he who is the truth did not spare his hearers, his questioners, the truth about calamity in the land when they came with questions about calamity in the land. In fact, he drove them into the truth. He did not consider it a mercy to hold the truth back to them. He considered it a duty and a mercy to deliver the truth to them. First, let's look at the calamity of the Galileans here. For there were those present in that season who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they came to the Lord Jesus innocently, sweetly, wanting his opinion, just desiring the opinion of this itinerant preacher named Jesus about the Galileans and their blood that Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You'll recall that they weren't innocent at all. (laughs) That They were looking to entrap the Lord Jesus. They were looking to set him against their Roman rulers, against their governor, Pilate, and thus undo the Lord Jesus, thus bring him down and end his ministry, if not his life, end his influence with the masses who were more and more following him, listening to him. And so there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The Galilean Jews had been slain while going to the temple to sacrifice. This is an atrocity. This is shocking. This is headline news. This is front page. This is top of the Google banner. Pilate murders worshipers at temple. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone knows about it. This is a great injustice. Should we take up arms and and fight against Pilate? What should we do? Should we march in the streets? For while they were in the temple, their blood had been mixed with the blood of the sacrificial animals upon the altar. This was extreme blasphemy and would be an infamous event that all of Israel would soon hear about. This is what they brought to Jesus. In an attempt to seemingly trip Jesus up politically with Rome or theologically with Israel, right? You're kind of between a rock and a hard place. If, if you don't condemn it outright, thus setting yourself against Pilate, getting tripped up with Rome, then you're making light of this blasphemy of the altar and the temple and the murder of faithful Jews. And so they were deliberately putting Jesus on the spot there to either be in trouble with the Jewish authorities or in trouble with the Roman authorities, specifically Pilate. And the Lord Jesus, being full of wisdom, being all-wise, didn't fall into their trap and didn't respond to their felt needs. He didn't fall into their trap, nor did he respond to felt needs. 
Most today would respond to their felt needs. Most today would try to provide comfort, would try to distance God from any accountability for what took place there. They would do their best to explain how God has nothing to do with this. In fact, not long ago, just yesterday, in fact, someone near me was guilty of that. And they're well-meaning, but they were trying to distance God from a tragedy that took place nationally. And ultimately, it's a blasphemy of God. Did they mean to blaspheme God? No. They meant to defend God. But when we apologize for God, when we diminish God's sovereignty and we diminish God's justice so as to remove God from atrocities that take place, calamities that take place, we have not done God any favors. And the Lord Jesus has no motive, no compelling desire to distance God from this calamity that came upon the Galileans. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Verse 2, Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? He doesn't deny the suffering. The suffering is real. There's no reason to deny it. He has no compelling motive to deny the suffering of the Galileans. But he also has no compelling reason to deny the reality that God brings suffering upon sinners. So he says to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And he expands it out beyond these sinful Galileans and God's just judgment upon them to bring suffering upon them to all sinners. Seeming to suggest, seeming to state that all men are sinners, that all men will suffer the just penalty of sin, which is death, unless they repent. And of course, that's exactly what he is saying. That's exactly the message of Holy Scripture. And so do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Uh, He has removed any political threat. He's removed any theological threat. And he has placed them under the threat of God's just judgment. Because that's the main thing. The Lord Jesus was always busy about the main thing. And it's just interesting. There's nothing you could throw at him, right? The old kids saying, how's that go? I'm rubber, you're glue. (laughs) Uh, Whatever you throw at me, it'll bounce off me and stick to you. I, I didn't quite get it right. It's been a long time since I repeated that on the playground. But whatever they threw at the Lord Jesus bounced right back off and it stuck on them with convicting truth. And that's a great pattern for us to look to and and to emulate. You know, don't go where the sinner wants you to go in the conversation. Don't go where they want you to go. Take what they have given you and bring it back around to what they need. And what they generally need is a revelation of sin, righteousness, and judgment, which is what the Lord Jesus said he's sending the Holy Spirit to do, is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so they come at Jesus with this theological or political threat based upon this headline news, Galilean worshipers murdered in temple, and he brings it back around to them and their sin and God's judgment upon them. And we'll see, he will press them to repentance even. And so the calamity of the Galileans. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? When when we see calamity, when we see suffering, when we see death, individually or corporately, if we should see such a horrific scene as that of September 11th, 2001, people leaping from the Twin Towers trying to save their lives as the fires are rising, or you just see the tower disintegrate before you and all the people inside disintegrate with it. 
Uh, if you should see the planes crash in and turn into fireballs, whether it's into the Pentagon or the fields, or if you see a great flash over what was once a great city and all those people are consumed in a great blast all at once. I mean, these are sobering images. And in our humanity, in our sin, we may be compelled to, to feel like an injustice has been done. But God is a just judge. Psalm 711, God is a just judge. And whether it is terrorist, jihadist with box cutters, or whether we provoke Putin foolishly and he launches a nuke against one of our cities to tell us to back off, which would be nightmarish, God is a just judge. And whether New York is wiped out all at once or whether two towers are wiped out by two planes, God is a just judge. And for the believers who were in those towers, or hypothetically the believers who were in New York City as a whole, it was their best day. They met the Lord face to face. They put off these bodies of death. And they will never, ever, 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 ever want to come back because they're under the fullness, the love of God Almighty who has wiped away every tear And so for them, it was their very best day. For those believers who went to work in the Twin Towers and who never came back, it was their very best day. For the believers who got on those planes and never came back, it was their very best day. God did not wrong them, nor did he wrong their families. For those non-believers, it was a day of judgment, a day of just judgment. God is a just judge. Every day you live in your sin, every day you live unrepentant, is it borrowed day. It's a day of grace that you do not deserve. It's another breath. It's another heartbeat that you not, do not deserve. It's another sunrise and sunset that you do not deserve. You're living on borrowed time. The wage of sin is death. Every day you, you stand in this thin fabric of a universe over the fires of hell, and your sin is crying out against you. The angels in heaven, holy, 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 are crying out against you. They're shocked that God will put up with you another day. Oh, that you would repent. Because God's righteousness has set an arrow against you. The bow is bent. The arrow is set. And the arrow will find its mark in your precious life and soul. And it says even that there are fiery shafts. These are like arrows of fire, which are a terror in the ancient world because they they cause one city to burn down. Everything you know and love will be burnt. It will all be gone, and you will be in the flames of just judgment forever. And we live as if this isn't real as non-believers, as if we've got another day, or we've got an eternity in this body, this frail body, that no accidents happen, no calamities happen, Tomorrow is going to be just as today was. And if nothing else, if you leave with nothing else today, leave with the certainty of this. Death will come. And typically death comes suddenly. Typically death comes when you don't expect it. Even in our old age, we still put it out. We still put it off. We're still shocked the older we get when our old friends are dying. We're shocked when actors and actresses and singers and reporters that have been on the TV or on the radio all their lives, die. And you hear, oh, did you you hear this person died? Did you hear that person died? And we're always shocked. Death is the norm in a fallen world. The wage of sin is death. And that wage, that judgment is upon humanity. And we have affected in our sin all of creation. Death is the norm. You see a dead whale on the beach... Oh my, that's the norm. Dead seal, that's the norm. Not shocked, but it's a seal, it's a whale. A dead human being, now that's an eternal soul. Uh, Not shocked, but I am appalled. Because that's an eternal soul. We need to live in light of eternal judgment. Live in light of the wage of sin, which is death. And the Lord Jesus 
would have us every time we see such a calamity, every time we hear of death, to be reminded that the wage of sin is death. And to not guard our loved ones excessively from the discomfort, always taking care of their felt needs, to feel comfortable. We wouldn't want to face death. No, we need to face death. We need to be aware of death. We need to be aware that unless sin is interrupted by grace through repentance of faith in Jesus Christ, then death and death eternal is the certain future. Calamity will come individually or corporately. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Worse sinners. Worse sinners. I mean, surely only that kind of thing happens to the worst of sinners. Did you hear about the guy who was sleeping in California and the sinkhole opened up under his bedroom and swallowed him and his body was never found? Now, granted, I think, wow, that is terrifying. And then I think, wow, what sin was he into? But should I necessarily think that? Were these worse sinners than you? My guess is he probably was an average sinner who thought he'd have another day, who thought the sun would rise and the sun would set one more time. But it never rose for him. He went to bed, was sleeping peaceably when he was swallowed by the earth. Sobering. Sobering. Some years ago, I came across this story of a woman who was in a bear region, bear country, Foolishly, don't go to bear country without a weapon. And she was in bear country and she got attacked by bears and she, she calls her mother as the bear is eating her. The most horrifying conversation I have ever heard. I don't recommend that you search it out. But it's sobering. The wage of sin is death. And you won't necessarily die in some peaceful way, some comfortable way. But hear me, the bear... The sinkhole, the great flash of a plane or a nuclear bomb exploding. None of this is as terrifying as eternity in hell. Their suffering didn't end after the bear, after the sinkhole, after the smoke rising and leaping from the window of one of the towers, after the terror of realizing you're hijacked and trying to regain control of the plane, and realizing it's not going to happen. We're going down. Oh, that terror, that suffering is momentary and is minuscule. Thus, the Lord Jesus doesn't bother himself with the sensitivities of that suffering or that terrorism, the terror of the terrorist act of Pilate murdering them and mixing their blood with their sacrifices on the altar nor does he even get caught up in the blasphemy of it. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so he's always busy about that work. Warning them. Oh, yes, you want to talk about that? Look at that. Stare it in the face. Were they worse sinners than you? I tell you no. And unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Of course, Romans 3 Verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. How far under sin? Six feet under. Dead. We're dead under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Except by the grace of God, that is the description of us all. And we will die in that state. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all deserve the judgment of God. Does that mean that all sin is the same? No, that's another topic. We won't go far down that bunny trail, but 
No, not all sin is the same. Some sins are worse than others. God is a just judge and he will mete out judgment accordingly. Obviously, in God's theocratic kingdom, he gives certain judgments for certain sins. And and I will say that while the rod is bad, being stoned to death is worse, which would seem to indicate that this sin was bad, but this sin was worse. God is a just judge. Well, paying restitution isn't really that bad. It's just just. But you could say it was bad personally, right? It was a hassle. Paying restitution is bad. The rod is bad, but being stoned to death is worse. There were certain sins the Lord chastened in Israel. Yes, that's bad. There's other sins where God actively opened up the earth and swallowed them or sent fire from heaven and consumed them. Worse. And so clearly throughout Scripture, not all sin is sin in the sense that all sin is the same. All sin is the same in the sense that any sin will take you to hell. Thus, the universal truth with, with the Galileans, worse sinners than you. Worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans. No, they're all sinners, universally judged. And yet God is a just judge, and so he will mete out his judgment in hell perfectly. There are worse places in hell. There is worse suffering in hell. No good place in hell. But God is a just judge. The calamity of the Galileans. Were the Galileans worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? No. No. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wage is of sin is death. What we earn, we work hard for, God will pay us. But the gift of God, so wage versus gift, right? Do you want your wages? Then it's death and death eternal in hell. The gift of God, the gift of God is through Christ Jesus. It's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Consider the disciples' view of calamity or caused by sin, in John 9, verses 1 through 3. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man or his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So calamity or suffering was taking place in this man's life for the glory of God. And what do we say about that? We say it's good. We say it's good. It's good that God will be glorified in this life. That is the greatest good. that We might glorify God. Sometimes God allows suffering in our lives that we might glorify Him, that we might live by faith, that we might show that our joy, our peace is not found in our perfect day, in our perfect health, in our perfect wealth, in our perfect comfort, that our joy and our peace is found in our perfect God. And our certain hope of being with him forever as children of God in a place where there is no sin and there is no death and where every tear is wiped away. And so they surmise that he's born blind and so it must be due to his sin or his parents' sin. And the Lord Jesus answers, no, but it's for the glory of God. Now, I will say in a broader perspective, and the Lord Jesus, of course, would, would say this as well, that he would not be blind except for sin, right? These calamities are all the result of sin, but on a personal level, he was not blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, but for the glory of God, that he might be healed, that he might see. Consider calamity or suffering and chastening. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And it's easy to forget this. In the midst of calamity, in the midst of suffering, it's easy to forget that you're a son or a daughter of God and to feel like you're estranged from God. But because Jesus was estranged from God on the cross, you will never be estranged from God. Because Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? You will never be forsaken by God. And calamity and suffering do not mean you've been forsaken by God. But in our flesh, we are prone to forget this. Thus, Hebrews 12.5 says, you have forgotten 
the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which... All have become partakers. All have become partakers. All sons and daughters of God are partakers of chastening. God will chasten us. There will be calamity. There will be suffering for the perfection of our faith, for sanctification, that God might have the full glory due to his name from our lives and that we might learn to love him more and take satisfaction and joy and peace in our relationship with God and not find our satisfaction and joy and peace devoid of God from the things in this world. And so again, verse 7, Hebrews 12, 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chasing, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Some think because of chastening, they're not sons or daughters of God. No, if you're without chastening, you're not a son or daughter of God. If you can sin it up and just have peace and joy, and this is great, then that would be good evidence that you're not a child of God. But the Lord is faithful to chasten his children. Verse 9, furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father's spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by it. May we be trained, and thus we can move on. Trained, and thus we can grow. Trained, and thus God can be glorified in our lives. And so, back to the Lord Jesus' question. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Sinners suffer. Unbelieving sinners suffer in life and in death, in eternity and judgment. Believers suffer in life, chastened by a faithful father that they might grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and sanctification for the glory of God and for their own blessing. And in calamity, in calamity, sinners suffer the due penalty of their sins and go to judgment. In calamity, surviving sinners that are unrepentant suffer and they often turn farther from God. They harden their hearts against God and they cry out against Him. In the experience of calamity, survivors of calamity who are believers will ultimately grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. I've told you the story several times of the man years ago. I knocked on the door and he was bitter against God. He wanted no part of God because God had taken his wife and she was a good woman. She was a good Christian and, and so forth. And, and I exhorted him to repentance and faith and to trust God. I did so graciously. I gave compassion, but also reminded them that the, the sorrow and the loss was befitting the wonder and the glory of this gracious gift that God had given them, this wife. We, we don't deserve a spouse, a husband or wife that so loves us, that we so cherish. It's a gift of God. And if they are taken, that the, the pain of their absence shouldn't cause us to be embittered toward God, but to thank God for such a precious gift, to give us a man or woman that would so love us and so cherish us. And to know, especially if they're believers, he was stating, I opened and I read to him about heaven. I said, that's where she is. And she doesn't want to come back as much as she loved you. She doesn't want to come back. And God saved her and brought her to himself. And you would hold angst against God for saving her graciously under the blood of the Lamb? for pouring his wrath on his own beloved son in her place and then taking her to heaven as a trophy of grace to pour his love on her forever and you're going to hate God for that? No, my friend. Repent of that. Bend your knee to Christ as Lord. Follow him. And about a year later, he did. Praise God. He showed up here and was with us until he died. And so praise God. 
He learned the believer's lesson of calamity. He submitted to the truth. And we must as well. And so the calamity of the Galileans, the calamity of the Galileans. One more thing must be said about that. When calamity strikes individuals or corporately, it's not just a car accident that just happened. It's not the Twin Towers that just happened that day. They they happened to take box cutters and they happened to get on that plane and they happened to crash into those buildings and the people who went to those buildings happened to go to work in those buildings. And it's all happenstance. It's all chance. It just happened. No, God is sovereign over calamity, over everything. He is sovereign over life and death. And it doesn't just happen. Consider even from last week, Genesis 50, verses 17 through 21. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. On the even broader spectrum, of course, we can go to Romans 8. 28, where it says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to the purpose, his purpose, for we, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so the Lord works all things for the good of his elect. When the Twin Towers fall, the elect, redeemed believers, instantly caught up to heaven. The elect, unredeemed family members, friends, average citizens watching this on TV, who are caused great fear and sorrow, will be further led to repentance and faith in God's time through that experience. Those who are continuing in their sin, who are not going to be called of God, regenerated by God, illuminated by God, they will take that and grind it as an axe against God. Boy, how could the sovereign God of the Bible exist if that happened? Because they elevate themselves. And they elevate the rest of humanity out of their nature of sin. And they elevate themselves to the status of just judge, thinking they can judge God, who is the only just judge. And God says to them in Romans 9, Get out of my seat. I'm the potter. You're the clay. This I know, God is just. Why? The Bible tells me no. This I know, God is just. Why? Because I'm unjust and you are all unjust. There are no just men. Therefore, we're not qualified to determine what is just, what is good, what is holy, what is right. This I know, God is holy, holy, holy. He is the standard of good. His character, His nature, His deeds, His commands, His prohibitions are the standard of good. Therefore, When God wipes out humanity with a global flood, save Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives. Therefore, when God wipes out humanity, when he releases the gluons that hold the cosmos together, and the cosmos is consumed in a great fire, God is a just judge. Therefore, when God allows box-cutter-wielding terrorists to take down the Twin Towers, God is a just judge. Therefore, if God should allow a nuclear holocaust limited to a city or a few cities, or globally, God is a just judge. Therefore, if God should allow a fiery car crash, God is a just judge. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. And without the truth of the Bible, I have no path to truth. Without the justice of God, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, I have no standard of justice, holiness, goodness, nor does anyone else. 
And you do not want to look to man, not to yourself, the man in the mirror, nor to any other man for a standard of good or evil, right or wrong. For that standard will be arbitrary and will fail. So, the calamity of the Galileans. Jesus cut through their felt needs, ignored them entirely. Jesus blew away the theological threat and the political threat, and he dealt with them at the core issue of their need to be conscious of their own sin and the wrath of God coming for them as sinners, just like they saw the judgment of God come for the Galileans. They thought they were going to be talking about the terrorist act of Pilate, and Jesus spoke to them about their sin and the justice of God and the judgment of God upon their sin. Whoa, I thought that was terrorists. Ultimately, God is sovereign. Not a terrorist takes up a box cutter, except that the Lord allows it. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, except that the Lord allows it. And so the calamity of the Galileans Secondly, the calamity of the Tower of Siloam, verse 4, or those 18. Now, this is still the crowd, this, these people coming challenging Jesus. First, they bring this, this terrorist event, the murder of the Galilean worshipers, but a hand of Pilate and their blood mixed with their sacrifice on the altar. Secondly, they bring the calamity of the Tower of Siloam, verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Oh, excuse me, I misspoke. Jesus brings this to them. They bring the terrorist act to Jesus. They bring the Galilean worshipers and Pilate's murder of them and mixing of their blood with the blood of their sacrifice upon the altar, trying to entrap Jesus. Jesus cuts right through their trap Jesus cuts right through any sensitivity to anyone's felt needs and deals with their central need of repentance as sinners before a holy God who will bring judgment upon them unless they repent. And then he turns it back around and challenges them and says, or those 18 in whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? The first headline news was Something that men had done. Men went to sacrifice. A man had those men murdered. The second was what on the insurance policy would be termed an act of God. An act of God. The calamity of the Tower of Siloam. And for some, this is even more challenging, right? This is not evil men. This is out there in nature. This is out there in the middle of the day. This is like the sinkhole in California that swallowed the man while he was sleeping. You can't deny that that's an act of God and a terrifying one at that. So the Lord Jesus challenges them further. Again, ignoring any felt needs, ignoring any sensitivities, ignoring completely the political and theological trap they had set up for him. He cares for their souls and he would have us to do the same. Or those 18 in whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Did the Tower of Siloam fall by chance and kill 18 people? No. Did it fall by terrorist act? Did somebody fly a plane in the Tower of Siloam? No. It just happened. But it didn't happen by accident. It happened right on time. Or those 18 in whom the Tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all of the men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Oh, this is so healthy for us, saints. It's so healthy for us to consider the justice of God, to consider the sovereignty of God, to consider what what Jesus wants them to consider. He challenged them. You want me to stop and think about that and answer this? Well, you stop and think about this and answer me. How about those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Were they worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? God was in control at the Tower of Siloam. God was in control on September 11th, 2001. God was in control when the 
COVID-19, China, Fauci virus, Fauci, China virus, whatever you want to call it, was unleashed and many people died. God is in control every day, every hour. When calamity befalls us individually and corporately, city, state, nation, mankind. Did the flood just happen? <laughs> Will the gluons of the universe be unleashed and all the universe consumed in a fiery flash uh, by happenstance? No, God is a just judge. Second Chronicles 7.13 says this, God speaking, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilences among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When I shut up heaven, when I command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilences among my people. God is sovereign in all these things we tend to call nature. Oh, Mother Nature is angry. No, Mother Nature is not angry. Mother Nature doesn't exist. God is a just judge, and He is angry with the wicked every day. And yet here God is merciful and loving and has sent His Son Jesus to plead with the wicked that they would repent. That they would see the justice of God, not cry out against it. They, They would see the justice of God, not call it a terrorist act and miss the bigger picture. They would see the justice of God and not call it a terrible workplace accident. Did you hear about the Tower of Siloam? It fell. 18 people died. Oh, well, I guess that's life. No, it's death and death eternal. It's judgment under the justice of God. And we need to cut through the surface of the headlines and deal with reality. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, may that forever be impressed upon us. And may every calamity, may every tragic death, individual or corporate, may it press that upon us. And may we be messengers of it. May we not perpetually deal with felt needs. And may we not perpetually get caught up in the headlines that are just the surface. They're just the surface. And when we have unbelievers, atheists, all around us, crying out against the injustice of the terrorism, press into that and say, well, why is that wrong? Why is one monkey killed another monkey wrong? Should we go out and arrest the monkeys in the zoo? I saw a monkey beating a monkey the other day. Should they arrest him? Should we go out and arrest the bears and the cougars? Do you know they're killing deer? Yeah, you know, some of those mama bears, they'll kill their own cubs. Should we go arrest them? Where they're just animals. Well, what are we in your atheistic worldview? What gives you the right to say that's wrong? The Muslim terrorist, he believes that's right, that Islam would rule and reign the world and that we would you know, be brought into their glorious vision for the Muslim eschaton. You're going to cry out against that atrocity, that rape, that murder? Why is that wrong? Well, I'll tell you why it's wrong. Because human beings are created in the image of God. That's why it's wrong. Because God says you shall not murder. That's why it's wrong. Because God says, love your neighbors yourself. That's why it's wrong. And you know what? Your heart agrees with the law of God because God has written his law upon your heart. But when you reject your creator, you don't have any ground to stand on and say, hey, did you hear about that terrorist act? So what? The right or wrong of it cut out. So what? They died like dogs. They're dead. They're gone, right? That's your atheist worldview. They have no soul. Some of those people were probably having a bad day. Well, their bad day's over. Some of those people are probably in a bad life. Their bad life's over. Big deal, right? There's no rhyme or reason. There's no good or bad in an atheistic worldview. Some get on a plane. They land where they were trying to go. They see family, and it doesn't matter. They'll soon all be dead, like dogs. Some get on a plane and fly to Twin Towers and blow up and kill a bunch of people. It doesn't matter. They're all cosmic space dust, right? They're all accidents, Space-time, chance, mixed up in the cosmos, and boom, out they came. And they're just matter fizzing here or there. Why are you crying out against that? You know why? Because you know that they're human beings. And why don't you typically cry out, a squirrel died and your whole life goes to pieces. But if you saw a child get run over in the street, oh, yeah, that's horrific. Why? Why are you 
typically see a hunter with a deer that he's harvested and you don't lose your mind, typically, right? Or you go to the grocery. How many people go to the grocery and see meat? Do you know that meat was once a living cow or chicken? Or you go to McDonald's and you get a chicken nugget and do you know that it's rumored that there's chicken in those chicken nuggets? You chicken murderers. Why eat chicken nuggets and not children nuggets? Why? An atheistic worldview. Why are you crying out against any of this? And so when they respond to calamity how they should, as men and women create in the image of God, press into that and say, wow, why is that wrong? Well, I'll tell you why it's wrong. Because God created the heavens and the earth. And because we're created in God's image, because people have eternal souls, and because the love of neighbor is the second greatest commandment. That's why it's wrong. But what about you? Since you're making judgments of that being wrong, do you support the murder of unborn children? So you don't like terrorists murdering children and adults and buildings, but it's okay for them to do it up the street. Hmm. Or of those 18 men on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all of the men who dwelt in Jerusalem? These are the kind of questions we need to be asking people. Cut through the felt needs. Cut through the headlines. Join the Holy Spirit in what Jesus said the Holy Spirit came to do. Convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And guard yourself from getting caught up in surface issues ultimately, right? Terrorist acts are going to come and go. Calamities, natural disasters are going to come and go. You know what's really coming? Glory. The kingdom. Eternity. So what really ultimately matters? Repentance and faith in Christ. Sinners becoming conscious of their sin and the due penalty of sin, the judgment of God that is coming for them. That's why Jesus says what He says. Because eternity is a really, 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 really long time. And because the headline news, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And if it bleeds, it leads. And that's not going to change. If it bleeds, it leads. So... Pull it out like Jesus did and say, hey, why does this matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Were they worse sinners than you? No. Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Eternal calamity or repentance. Final point. Eternal calamity or repentance. In verse 3, Jesus answers them and says, I tell you no. He gives that rhetorical question. He says in verse 2, Uh, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then in verse 4, were those 18 in whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So sin, righteousness, judgment, repentance. That's our message. And the headlines all lead to it. They all lead to it. Matthew 3, 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! You know, repentance is falling in hard times. We don't want to call anyone to repent anymore. It's so legalistic. Because we don't want to deal with sin and righteousness and judgment. We just want to talk about Jesus, be Jesus people, or even not talk about Jesus. We just want to be nice in Jesus' name, but not mention Jesus' name, because that would turn people off. It would irritate people. People don't get saved in a vacuum. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. We've got to bring the Word of God to bear upon them. We've got to follow Jesus' example. We've got to not ask, gee, what would Jesus do? Hmm, it's a mystery. Well, here's what Jesus would do. He would speak truth where truth needs to be spoken and not get caught up in felt needs, not get caught up um, in... Uh, just the politics of it or just the theological issue of it, um, but speak to sin and righteousness and judgment and the need to repent. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 15, one of my favorite verses, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's memorize a verse together. You ready? Repent and believe the gospel. You got it? Mark 1, 15. It's really central. It's really central. It's really easy. It's our message. It's Jesus' message. It's a summary message. You know, it's the summation of it. But repent and believe the gospel. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. Repent has to do with sin and judgment and turning from that sin to avoid judgment. Repent 
and believe the gospel, the good news, that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Fully God, fully man, crucified for sinners. Repent and believe the gospel. So where, where should calamity lead us? To repent and believe the gospel. How should we deal with calamity? We should point people to the need to repent and believe the gospel. Their concerns about the calamity, not that we are divorced from or entirely insensitive to the felt needs, um, but hear me, we are way too sensitive to the felt needs and divorced from their true need to repent and believe the gospel. So if there needs to be a divorce, divorce yourself from concern about the felt need and grasp on to the eternal need to repent and believe the gospel. I don't see Jesus having any concern for their felt needs here. Any concern for their theological issue, for their uh, political issue. He cuts right to the eternal issue. Were they worse sinners than you? Mm -mm. Repent, or you'll likewise perish. Mark 6, verses 7 through 13, the Lord Jesus calls the 12 to himself. He commissions them and he sends them out so that in verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent, which is exactly what he trained them to do. That's the heart of our message. That's Jesus' example. That's Jesus' command. That's what Jesus trained his disciples to do. That's what Jesus left us here to do, to preach repentance. And when there's calamity, that's opportunity. Not just to hand out sandwiches, but to preach repentance. Certainly not to say God's on the backside of the universe, didn't see this coming, didn't know what was going on. You know, we'll, we'll try to get in touch with them. We'll go beat a drum or something and see if we can't call down some mercy. No, repent and believe the gospel. In Luke 24, 47, Jesus' great commission in Luke 24, it says, and that repentance and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then all through Acts, that's exactly what you see. Particularly, let's pull out in Acts 17 and verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. These times of ignorance, thinking that the, the headlines are the, the full summation of the truth. Well, the headline was just the surface. Um, terrorist attack on worshipers in temple. That's just the surface. Tower of Siloam Falls kills 18. That's just the surface. Truly, these times of ignorance, we've got to get off the ignorant surface and get to the truth. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, we are out of time. A little recap. Calamity in the land. There will be calamity in the land until Christ returns. King of kings, Lord of lords, and rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. And even then, there'll be a bit of calamity at the end of that. And then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which there is never calamity, never suffering, never death ever, ever, ever again. But until that time, there will be calamity in the land, personally, individually, corporately, there will be calamity in the land. Be prepared to deal with it. Be prepared to walk with faith through it. Be prepared to not get caught up in the headline. Be prepared to not get caught up in the felt needs. Be prepared to not get caught up in the feelings yourself, but in faith. Trust God. Believe God. Know that God is as good as He was before the calamity, in the midst of the calamity, as He will be after the calamity. God is good, God is just, God is holy, and that He loves His children perfectly, and that He has a perfect plan for them, which includes calamity, this side of heaven, that we might be chastened by it, that we might grow in faith by it, that He might receive the full glory from our lives through it, and know that His calamity that He allows providentially will work out for the repentance of His elect to bring to heaven those that die in calamity that are in Christ. And God will be just in bringing his judgment on those that he brings judgment on in the calamity and on those that are hardened through the calamity. 
for whether they're going to be hardened in their moral sins, sinning day after day after day, hardening their hearts against God, or they're going to be hardened as they look out at the headlines in the world and the calamities in the fallen world, and they use that to justify their axe grindings against God. God is a just judge, and he will justly bring his judgment upon them. So guard your hearts. Let the Word of God school your hearts. And let Jesus school you on how to deal with calamity, keeping the main thing the main thing. And the gospel is always the main thing. Dealing with sin and righteousness and judgment and the need to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ is always the main thing. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the main thing. And we thank you for this beautiful text, this beautiful example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we might be messengers of Christ, messengers of sin and righteousness and judgment, calling sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus all our lives. And we pray, Father, for greater faithfulness in that and strength toward that. And Father, we pray for faith in the midst of calamity, individually and or corporately, that we would not, Lord, have our faith dented or daunted or destroyed in calamity, but would draw nearer to you, not denying the real pain and the real suffering that calamity brings, Lord, but the reality of your love through it and the reality of our need to come closer to you in it, Lord, not to flee from you or to harden our hearts against you. And so, Lord, bless us, I pray, with greater faith, with growing faith, with understanding faith, based upon the truth of your word this day regarding calamity, regarding trial and suffering and hardship. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.